They say that mindfulness is the key to everything, the foundational skill that can help us to face all the challenges that come our way. How about if we spend an hour with a mindfulness expert? That sounds like Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. It's great to be back. I have a great interview f- for you today. Just before we get started, I want to remind you to uh, please subscribe to the podcast on all the uh, places that you get podcasts. Give us a five-star review. Share with friends. Uh, visit us at The Light Revealed and Consciously62 on Instagram and Facebook. Consciously the podcast at gmail.com and the Intentional Jew Podcasting Network. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Jonathan, or Yoni Feiner, who works as a clinical director at Achieve Behavioral Health and is the founder director of Rockland CBT. He's also the author of Mindfulness, A Jewish Approach, published by Mosaica Press in 2020. In addition to his work as a clinical psychologist, he teaches and provides workshops on topics related to Judaism, psychology, and mindfulness in academic and community settings. Prior to receiving his PhD from Hofstra University, Dr. Feiner studied in Yeshiva at Karabayavna and in Yeshiva University's Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary. He lives with his wife and children in New Hempstead, New York. It was an awesome conversation, as you'll see, and I really look forward to sharing it with you. His book, you can find on the Mosaic uh, website. I'll post it along with the link for my book. Uh, it was really, really amazing. He's a, a great author, a very, very practical book. I really encourage you to go out and get, get out there and get it, and I'm sure once you hear what he has to say, you'll definitely want to get out there and hear what he has to say. So with that, here's Dr. Feiner. Hey, Dr. Feiner, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Menachem. This is uh, this is really exciting. Since I saw your book, uh, I've been excited to do this. Uh, we actually had this scheduled a few weeks ago, but uh, I was in the midst of the audience knows I was in the midst of my darkness, so I uh, I retreated. But I'm grateful that you uh, gave me another shot at this. Thank you for joining us. Really a pleasure. A pleasure. Okay, so I, I gave the audience we gave the audience a little bit of a, an idea of who you are, some of your qualifications. Um, but if you could just give us a little bit of background info. Sure. So. Actually, I grew up in, in your area. I grew up in the five towns. We won't hold that against you. <laughs> I went to Halb for elementary school, and then I was actually the first year of the DRS high school. It wasn't called DRS back then. It was still Halb. But in the middle, I actually I switched to MTA, and then I spent a year in YU before going to Shiva Karmbiavna in Eretz Yisrael. And after Karmbiavna, I went back to YU. I actually started Smicha after YU, and then... In the middle of Smicha, I started graduate school at Hofstra. And then from there, you know, since then, I've been working as a psychologist and on, on the journey. You know, always, always just, you know, trying, trying to be a better person. And I'm at this point, I spend, you know, career-wise, I'm working, you know, mostly right now, actually, in Chi Behavioral Health, which is an amazing, you know, outpatient behavioral health center. So I work as one of the clinical directors there. And in addition, you know, I still have my you know, part-time private practice and and trying to just to be it, to be the best of Hashem that, that I can be. Amazing. Oh, so are you, uh, are you, do you have smicha? No, never finished. You never finished? Okay. So maybe, we could, maybe one day. We could pick at that a little bit. Sure. <laughs> okay. So um, the idea, as the audience knows, is to try to get to know these 
remarkable people, uh, people doing regular people, but people doing kind of great things. Um, that's kind of the, the, the bent of this podcast, of this interview series. Um, and we want to get to know you on an interior level, not just, I mean, we covered kind of the OCOs, the externalities of who you are, but to really get to know you maybe uh, a little bit more intimately without it being invasive. That's kind of the idea, right? So uh, we talked about that before. So uh, the, the way that we structured the questions is on a frame of Olam Shana Nefesh, which is kind of space, time, and spirit, right? And the, and the questions kind of reflect that. Actually, I go in the opposite order. Maybe I should change the order, but uh, we'll talk about a place in your life. We'll talk about a spiritual proverb or a story or a principle um, that's, that's incredibly important to you. And then a moment in your life that you would want to share with us that uh, kind of gave you a sense of hope. Uh, and motivated you to become the person that you are today. So uh, starting back in the uh, in the world of space, um, I asked you to think about where your most favorite place in the world is. And I asked you to try to be as exact as possible. So, and why? Why is that a space that kind of uh, reflects you? Or what's the message that you take from that? So first, I, I just want to thank you for the questions. They were very helpful for me in being reflective and really just thinking about things and some things that unfortunately I haven't thought about in a while. So they were great questions, and I, I really appreciated them Thanks. And the ability to think about them. So when it came to space, you know, clearly, I think, you know, most most Jews, we have a connection or, or want to have a connection to Eretz Yisrael, and there's something there. But uh, on the one hand, I was concerned about giving that answer because it may sound, you know, overly cliche and, and, and trying to be a little more creative and, and thinking more into the question in terms of on a day-to-day basis, is there a space that is really you know, special to me. And, you know, the, the closest thing that came to mind is the, the Friday night table, you know, sitting, you know, that I, I, you could say it's really more of an issue of time, but for me, that's right. That's a special space in my life, you know, being able to just sit with my family, you know, Friday night, you know, together for me, that's, that's a very special space. Do you know, do you know why? Like, what about that? First of all, it's uh, after you answer that, I'd, I'd love to explore with you what a lot of people have come back with a particular space, but within time, within a context of time, as opposed to like a place, which is not something I necessarily anticipated. Uh, in the beginning, in the early stages, people picked places, like literal places. And then um, more recently, it's been like this, which is interesting that people have that association, that that spaces have to, they mean something because of the time that they're in, the context that they're in. And I guess what gives a space significance is the experience it gives us. So. I'm sure the person that had a very powerful tefillah at the at the hotel, you know, it's it's the experience that makes this space meaningful. Right. Right. So for me, it's and I can't say it's it's every Friday night. You know, of course there are those Friday nights where the, the kids are are a little wild, but but overall, it, it's just that moment of serenity and, and there is a certain reflection, like just you know that even just right before kiddush, you know, being able to just look at everyone, like like here we are, you know, reflecting back on the weekend. Now entering you know, the next you know, 25 hours of, of Shabbos, and right that moment is, is very special, and it's a lot of good things coming together. You know, being with the family, you know, stopping work, trying to get closer to meaning. It's just a, a very nice place where everything seems to come together you know, most of the time. Most of the time, it's a, meaning it's an opportunity for you to kind of step back and take in what's there. You think that that relates to like how busy Friday is? Like, is it in context to that? And, and life. And life, however overwhelming it is. And I'll, I'll just, 
it's interesting. You know, there were times in my life, unfortunately, where I, I wasn't that busy. I'm like, I, I wish to be busier. And and now it's at a time where Baruch Hashem, I'm very fortunate. Right. Busy. And it's a tremendous bracha. And but it, with with everything, you know, the the middle is the best. And you know, being able to have that time to stop work and to really just you know be with the family, reflect is is very powerful and, and important to me. Is there ever like I, you're working with people, you're trying to help people all week, which is inherently meaningful, right? Which so it's yes. funny, like I think for for those of us who who have the privilege of doing a job which is obviously meaningful, whereas I mean I think everyone's job is meaningful. Any job can be meaningful yes. if you ascribe meaning to it. Um, anyone, any job can be helpful. I mean, every job is helpful. Uh, you're helping somebody, right? Depending on your attitude. But you know, for those of us who's kind of it's obvious, it's in our faces. It's funny that, you know, for you, that Friday night, that moment before Kiddush, when you can look over at your kids and things are so peaceful and serene and you're drawing in meaning into your life. And yet there's meaning drawn into your life at every moment. I often tell people, you know, people say we learn from experience. I say that, that's not necessarily true. We learn from reflecting on experience. Mm. It, and unfortunately, people that go through experiences and don't learn from them. So I, I think... We one can be engaged in a lot of meaningful things, and and I hope during the week I, I do set aside time to reflect in different ways. And I guess we'll talk to, about that more when we get to mindfulness. But but it, I guess for me it's really that moment of putting everything together. Yeah, and I mean maybe I have to think about it more. You know why? You know you. Even though you the initial questions make me think the the follow up questions are, I have to really you know reflect more on this in terms of why specifically that moment. But you're right. That is a good point. You know here's. Thankfully, we're blessed to be in a avoda where you are engaged in meaningful things on a regular basis. But I, I think even there, we could sometimes lose the bigger picture. And I, I see this, you know, when I supervise clinicians, I try to start out actually, even most supervisions, I say, let's, we're just going to start with a little mindfulness exercise, just reminding ourselves, why are we doing this for? Right. Even when you're involved in meaningful things, you could get lost in the process. And unfortunately, I think we see this all the time. People, you get lost in the means and forget what it's really about. Right. So even if you could be engaged in meaningful things, it's important to still take aside, you know, that time and have that moment to reflect. Right. In some ways, I think if you if you lose sight of what you're doing, it's it's almost like harder in a certain way where like your where your job is is obviously meaningful. It's actually harder to reconnect and really reflect on the meaning because like it's you, you think that you don't have to think about it. You know, right, right. <laughs> it should be obvious, but it's not so obvious. It's so easy to get yes. lost in the minutia or in the other motives that that drive us. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So the, the the next question I asked you to think about was um, perhaps a, a, a story, a folk story, or a spiritual proverb, something that reflects you, something that you've drawn a guiding principle from. So it's interesting. Actually, just this morning, I was thinking about this question that you asked. And two different stories came up, but then I realized it's, it's actually a similar message. So if it's okay, if I share both. Yeah, please, please. One is, you know, many years ago when I picked up the Piaz Netzer Rebbe's translation of Savazir's To Heal the Soul, mm-hmm. and I opened it up, looking at the table of contents, there was this one chapter that said the Rebbe's somersault. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's great. You know, it must be talking about the Rebbe's, you know, his ups and downs in life, his struggles. And so I turned to that chapter. And what does it talk about? It talks about how he actually did a somersault. <laughs> that here, he felt it was during a Haknasa Sefer Torah, and he felt a tremendous urge to do something for Hashem. And he 
didn't know how to express. And his best way was in this somersault. And then what's amazing is there's this analysis after where he's questioning himself. This is, was I really doing it for the right motives? Was it really coming from a pure place? Was I trying to make myself look a certain way? And, but that story speaks to me in the sense that a lot of times, here we are, we're trying. And I think I told you, one of the phrases I, I loved in your book was just that term, an imperfect seeker. Mm. And I think many of the people that are listening to this and that you connect with are people that they're just trying. They're trying to be better people, grow in their avodos Hashem, grow as individuals. And when you're trying to grow, it's hard to sometimes know, am I really doing it for the right reasons? And for me, that's the story I, I go back to a lot, just thinking of the somersault. Like here, you know, we're doing things and we have to question it both ways. You know, there's that doubt, am I really doing it for the right purpose? And then there's also, maybe I am. And being able to have the doubt and at the same time move forward with it. Right. Even if it's, even if it's a, as absurd as a somersault. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's amazing. That's beautiful. I love that story. So what's your second story? So the other one was, it's actually, it's a Gemara in Tanis where Rav Lazar, the son of Shem Bar-Yachai, was leaving the base measures and he sees this person and he says, you, you look so ugly. And the person says, well, you have to speak to the artisan that made me. Hmm. Or Mayor Pemberslaner has a beautiful interpretation of the story. He says, of course, he wasn't saying that he's physically ugly, but here he had Rav Lazar. He grew up in the house of Shem Bar-Yachai. He was a really holy person. And he sees this person in his avodas Hashem doing things in a certain strange way. And it looked ugly to him. And the person says, speak to the artisan who made me, where I am at this stage in my life, this is how I serve Hashem. You, I didn't grow up in the house of Hashem Yochai. I don't know what you know. For me, this is my vote Hashem. And then he, Rav Lazar, responds to him, you're right. I made a mistake. And he apologizes and recognizes that the person was correct. And one way to understand that story is to say, when we look at other people, we should try to be down and realize that everyone's just doing their best on their level. But I think to, for me, it's not just about that. It's also reflecting on myself. You know, sometimes I look back at different periods in our life and question, was I really doing it then for the right reasons? And even if, as we grow older and hopefully we become more mature, gain wisdom, we could look back and say, Oh, I, you know, at that stage, that was a little silly what I was doing, but at that stage, that's, that's the best that I, I was able to do. Right. And that's what I thought was right at, at that stage. So even if when we look at ourselves and sometimes question, you know, is this ugly? But there too, I think it's important to realize we all just have to do the best with what we have. And, and for me that, even if they seem like two separate stories, I think it's a similar message about being able to live with that, that self doubt and still do it. And, and hopefully recognize that, you know, Hashem appreciates that we're just trying our best with whatever we have. Wow. So the, what, I, what, I, what I heard from what you were saying, just to unpack it a little bit, they're both kind of the themes around acceptance, right? That's, that's kind of where you're driving at. It's kind of like this, A, acceptance of my own limitations, and then the acceptance of who I am as a person and where I am and uh, the faith and trust that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be and I need to just do the best I can with where I'm at. Or, um, or not. Or not, right. Live with that doubt. Right. Um, so, but the, the power of the first story is that there's an action associated with it, right? There's like, okay, so here I am doing the best I can. I need to just take an action. And then did I have the right motive? Was I really just showing off? Was I making a mockery of myself? Was it just being silly? Was it just 
right? And the answer is that, but and the answer you're giving is, well, yes and no, it doesn't really matter. I'm saying you have to just do the best that you can and you have to take action out of that space of acceptance. Because I think acceptance can be kind of like very, um, it can be very, what's the word I'm looking for? It can put the brakes on things, kind of right. force yes. you not to move forward, right? So it's like a, it's a, it's a reflective response as opposed to reactive response, right? Mm -hmm. Which is nice. Yeah. It's good when you're not reactive, right? But when you're not reactive at all, that's like, that, that becomes problematic in and of itself. So you're highlighting there with the story of the Piazzetta and it was like that there's an action in the acceptance as well, that the acceptance kind of plays through throughout the action. I think that's beautiful. And the other component that you're talking about is more kind of from an existential standpoint, where it's like, I have to take responsibility for the fact that I, I can't take responsibility for everything. Like, like that's right. right. That's like a, there's a beautiful analogy that I've, that I've used a lot where like, if you were to evaluate, if you were to put the responsibility of your life into a pie chart, can't have a hundred percent responsibility. No person can have a hundred percent responsibility. I can't give anybody a hundred percent responsibility for where I am. And I can't give myself a hundred percent responsibility because there's so many variables going on. The only one with a hundred percent responsibility as the story reflects is the creator, right? That is the only one right. I can blame a hundred percent. Right. And, uh, and he can be a hundred percent responsible. And yet all these other variables could be true at the same time. And you know, the story is kind of displaying like, okay, but I, I am where I am. I have take responsibility for my slice of the pie, so to speak. And then I got to move forward and I got to just serve God from within myself. I like that. Right. Right. So those story, those two, that that's, I, is that what you were saying? I don't, I don't mean to misrepresent yeah, what you no, were no, saying. I it's think a, you, you said it very well. I like the way you unpacked it. Amazing. I like that a lot. I really, really like that. That's beautiful. Those are great stories. I mean, the, the Kamara I'm familiar with, but the PSN story, I didn't, I don't, I don't know that I'd heard it before. That's awesome. Okay. So I, an amazing analysis. Like you should, if you have the, it's to heal the souls, the English translation. It was just such a beautiful analysis. Yeah. Reflection. I mean, are you, are you, have you spent a lot of time in his writings? Actually, not so much. I mean, I've, I've gone through a lot of them, but I can't say I'm really steeped in his. Not steeped in his. And I, 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 yeah. He's a fascinating figure. Yes. It's a, he's really, really, I mean, I think uh, such a fascinating figure. Yeah. Um, you know, just, uh, just the, the historical context and then, his own personal context, like his, the only, the challenges that he faced in his own life, the suffering that he had, the kind of person that he was, it's almost like he's, uh, uh, an open secret that he existed, you know, like they like just, the uh, Weinberger really, yeah, well, yeah, Weinberger really brought him to the table in a, in a, in a remarkable way, but, uh, it's just, uh, it's so crazy. It's so remarkable. Um, and now I've actually, Shomo Katz is doing a really good job kind of really, really revealing that in a, you know, to a broader audience. It's, it's really great. Okay. So, um, I asked you to think about the final, so gotten to know you a little bit in terms of who you are and, and what, you know, what makes you tick. Um, but I asked you to think about an episode in your life, something that gave you a sense of a sense or permission to be hopeful or optimistic. I think, uh, going into the field that you're in being a psychologist, working with people requires a certain amount of optimism. It requires an optimism that says that people can get better, that life can be better, that help can work, that, you know, I can't just, I don't just have to lay back and blame the, the, the one who made me, that I can maybe take some actions to try to maximize the experience that I have in this world uh, and make the best of my life. So what, what gives you that permission to have that absurd thought? So this was actually the question I, that I was, I guess for those who are listening to this, I'm, I think it's amazing how many of the people that 
that join this podcast are able to be so so vulnerable and really share themselves in. And I would love to also, you know, be as real as I can. At the same time, I was telling Menachem before we started, you know, there was, you know, some, at one point in my life, somebody shared with, somebody very close to me shared a very powerful idea. And because I really liked the idea, I then shared it with somebody else. And I found that when I, I shared it, it took away some of the power to it because so much of what meant to me was the context that it was in. And when I shared it with somebody else, it, it lost that. And it, it just became an idea without the experience and the context. And, and because you're asking this, you know, an episode of my life that really gave me a sense of permission that I'm afraid to reveal it fully in the sense that it will take away the, what it means to me. But I'll, I'll, so I'll, to be able to describe without describing it too much in detail, I'll just say that there was a, a period in my life where I was having a, probably one of the hardest times in my life. And I reached out to Hashem and, you know, really asked that, that he helped me. And, and Baruch Hashem, I felt Hashem in different ways was really right there by me. Almost like, uh, as we just spoke about with Yosef, you know, the recognition, even with the, having the spices in the caravan on his way down to Mitzrayim, there was that recognition, like Hashem's there with him. And Hashem gave me, a small gift. It, it didn't take away the struggles, but it was just that recognition that he was right there with me. And for me, anytime I have any doubts or, you know, like that's where my mind goes, you know, back to that moment where, where I was reaching out and, and thankfully Hashem, you know, I, I really felt the answer. Wow. I saw a couple of things I want to respond to that. First of all, it's a very, very like Kutsk move to, <laughs> to talk about how, how uncomfortable you are with vulnerability which is probably the most vulnerable thing you can do, right? It's the, it's the most truthful and vulnerable. Uh, it's super easy sometimes to be uh, demonstrative and say all sorts of things that are personal and you're disassociated from what's actually going on versus like so humbly and authentically describing your conflict around being authentic because you don't want to use, lose the authenticity of the story. So uh, it's, it's a great move. Uh, <laughs> It's great stuff. I think I think uh, I think it's very powerful for the audience. I think it's uh, that's very real. You know, that's the kind of real that uh, that I think people can really gain from. The other thing that I wanted to kind of respond to that is I think that what you said is very powerful because a lot of us have those moments where we kind of, you know, we reached out, we really needed help, and we reached out, and and something happens. There's an answer. Now that doesn't always happen. Right. 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 It doesn't. That's uh, that's one of the the tragedies of faith. And belief, right? Because uh, you know God doesn't present Himself on demand, and, and uh, it does happen. You could always question, is it and then later you can question it, right? Exactly. Right. That's the way I was going to go, right? Mm -hmm. So it that's a very challenging part of that. That's a very challenging part of faith, you know. Is that is that and the emotional um, abandonment that can come along with when it doesn't happen. But then you talked about being able to draw your mind's eye back to that place that event that happened and really affirm, you know, your sense that God is with you, which is, I guess, what you described as giving you the sense of hopefulness or optimism is the fact that you feel like your creator is present and with you and going along with you on this journey. So yeah. how do you do that? How do you face the, the doubts that you've already admitted to? <laughs> Meaning how, how do you, how do you authenticate the story without kind of getting lost in that skepticism? That's interesting. I, I treat a lot of, clients that struggle with OCD and you know, one of the 
primary elements of OCD is, is doubt. And there's actually a category of OCD that people aren't as familiar with, existential OCD. Mm. People are really pained by the, the doubts in, in life. And, you know, there's an old saying, you know, the difference between the philosopher and the one who's strong with existential OCD is that the philosopher can sleep at night. Mm. And one of the things that I, I help, you know, work through with clients is really exploring the, the alternatives and what are our options. And faith by definition means there is going to be some leap. Yeah, otherwise, we wouldn't call it faith. We would call it knowledge or some other word. Yeah. So there's always going to be that little space where we have to, to jump. And for me, I, I say it's, I, I don't want to put it down. At some point, I think we have to say this is the best option. But then I think as one makes, after, you, after one makes the leap, the experience it, it itself reaffirm the journey. I'm not sure if that's making sense. No, it makes a lot of what sense. Let me, let me, maybe I'll reframe you know, what you're saying. It, okay. You can say it. You want to, you want to reframe well, it. There's a great, if people have a chance, Ravon Lichtenstein wrote a beautiful you know, essay years ago. You know, I think the, the source of faith is faith itself. And, you know, in that he too, you know, talks about, you know, you can go through all the logical proofs, this and that, but for him, it was, you know, the, the experiences really are what reaffirm the faith, his experiences with people, with his own life. So yeah, we could always have, you know, there, there's always that place for doubt, but um, I'm, I'm choosing to believe. Right. Well, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, it's a, it was a beautiful answer. Thank you. Uh, it, it resonates with I, me. I, I hope it made sense. I, it made a lot of sense to me. Um, and it made a sense to me because it really spoke to my experience with faith, which is that when you're traveling the journey, the faithful journey of a spiritual path, um, you might say, um, there's a, there are moments where you have to kind of take that leap of faith, choose to assume that that's true because it makes the most sense. It seems what it's what it's what feels most right or seems most logical. But oftentimes, the experience that comes from that is really what, in retrospect, affirms the faith and strengthens it. Uh, the word that I use oftentimes for that is it has to do with like conviction versus a word, like belief or, or knowledge. Right? There's like belief and then there's knowledge and then there's like conviction, not from the sense of taking action, but the conviction that I just know that this is true. Right. right. And it's not like I know it's true, like one plus one equals two. Right. Because that's a material thing. So I can prove it objectively, mm -hmm. but I can have a certain conviction about my faith that I know is true because of my experience, because and I can't give you that experience. And this relates back to what we were talking about earlier, I think, in a very powerful way. I can't give you my experience. I can tell you my experience, but I can't really give it to you. And if I try to give it to you, it almost almost takes it away because I'm packaging something that, you know, uh, I'm packaging something that in something that it's not meant to be in. Like uh, in, in Chabad Hasid, there's, there's, a, there's a very, very common analogy that's used when you talk about the transfer of one idea to another idea, right? So if I want to transfer an idea from me to you, I have to try to understand you. And I take the idea and I ostensibly denigrate it, right? I downgrade it so that I can give it to you because I'm putting it within the Kalim that you exist within, right? right? And the idea, because when the idea is in my mind, it exists on a much higher sphere because it's more abstract, mm -hmm. right? It's less material, yeah. right? And the minute I transfer it, it kind of denigrates, so to speak, the idea, but right, the denigration is purposeful and meaningful. And if anything, it might enhance the idea because, right? Because by the fact that I have to transfer it, it forces me to have to understand it at a deeper level. Right. 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 So all of that occurs kind of at the same time. Right. And what you're kind of saying is 
part of the leap of faith, so to speak, is not some kind of empty faith where I'm just believing in something that doesn't make sense to me, but rather that sometimes I have to just go on a hypothesis. And then my experiential awareness of what occurs is kind of what confirms the truth, which is actually scientific. It's actually not, it's not unscientific. It's actually very scientific. Mm -hmm. You said that beautifully. I, I love this, uh, the, 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 the point that you made about existential OCD. I think, I'm not sure, but it's weird. But that's the, I think the first time I ever heard that term. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, I, I it, it resonates and, and it, you answered the question of, oh, maybe I'm existentially OCD, right? <laughs> you start to get that anytime you start to talk about pathological terminologies, the, you have the automatic assumption, well, maybe that's right. what's wrong with me. Right. We talked about the ability to sleep at night, right? Whether I'm losing uh, sleep about it or experiencing uh -huh. anxiety, it's very, very powerful. I feel like that's something that a lot of people I think struggle with, particularly young people, young adults. Mm -hmm. Do you find that a lot of people come for help with that and you and you and the response to them is no 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 this is normal well i do want to do, there actually is a there's a real category of existential OCD where it's not just the person who's looking for for the truth and to, it, it's coming in most people with the real existential ocd it's they could be you know a regular guy even in, in yeshiva and they're just their mind is constantly you know giving them these crazy doubts you know maybe Judaism is not the right religion. Maybe there's no God. And, and even though they say, well, I, I know there is, but the intrusive thoughts keep on pinging them. Right. Or, you know, that's just, or, you know, how do I even know I'm real? And people could really be struggling. You know, maybe this is all a dream. So it's a, really a whole category in itself. And I think it is actually important to differentiate that between the adolescent or the person really you know, just questioning. And the question is supposed to be questioning those things. Yeah. Versus somebody yeah, who's a healthy questioning and then there's unhealthy questioning in the existential right. OCD case, you could give them all the best answers in the world and even the experiences, but they'll never feel satisfied. Right. Because what's driving them is something underlying that. Exactly. Right. Okay. So we're going to jump into the second half of the, the, uh, the interview and we try to right. pull from you. I, I really gems. So not that we haven't had till now. It's great. Amazing stuff. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, it's been really great so far. Um, I asked you to think about a daily practice or habit you have that you feel contributes to your personal success. It could be something that someone no one knows about, even maybe preferably something that's like subtle. Maybe I don't mean in the sense that's private or secret, but something that someone might not assume would be meaningful. And then it turns out that it really was meaningful. It doesn't have to be that, but um, something, it could be really anything. So I guess it the most basic answer, especially since we're going to be talking about mindfulness, is well, mindfulness. Okay. That I, I do, but what that means for me is it doesn't necessarily always mean I'm going to spend those 20 minutes a day in a, a mindfulness meditation exercise. It could be I'm just you know driving and no music, no phone, no anything, and using that time to reflect, to even at, at times to be able to to speak to Hashem. So it's you know for me. It's making sure every day there's those few moments, you know, whether it be in, in tefillah and just pausing and doing nothing, which really is clearly something. But for me, that I would say is the daily practice that you know helps keep keeps me grounded. And I find the days that I, I miss that, I, I see the difference. And once again, I'm mindfulness. I think it's a, it's more than just the way I'm understanding it and using it is not just 
a breathing exercise. It's, it could be used to really reflect and almost like a, a little cheshpan hanefesh. What's really powerful about what you said just now is, um, to me, is let's say if let's say somebody doesn't have an active practice of 10, 15 minutes of mindfulness meditation. You're saying what you said was even let's say removing the noise, which then inherently induces mindfulness. Yes, I think it's something that's like very practical, mm-hmm. right? Because so often you know we get a moment, a moment of time. It's not even peace, right? It's probably the opposite of peace, and we immediately turn on a device, switch on the radio, even maybe do a good thing. Maybe turn on a shear. right? Right. right. Even like, you can even like uh, break the moment of mindfulness into this podcast. <laughs> well, you can even like the, the great irony would be like, um, break the moment of mindfulness by turning on a guided meditation. Right. right. Yes. <laughs> just so you can avoid your own thoughts. Right. So it'd be just like taking the opportunities that we have sometimes that are come along with our, our mundane days. Right. That that's not like anything, not, not to diminish any of those things. It's great. I mean, mindfulness, meditation practices are incredibly important. I, I engage in them. I'm not denigrating them at all. But what you said that was, that really jumped out at me is I'm in the car, I'm on the way somewhere. I have 10 minutes in the car. And instead of turning on the radio, turning on Spotify and listening to a podcast or listening to some music, I could not do that. Right. And, and instead of feeling like, okay, well now I'm just sitting here my mind's racing and I'm not doing anything. We said, no, 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 you are doing something. That's actually doing something. That's called mindfulness. Yes. That's, I think that's a, a very powerful thing. Um, I think it could be very, very um, useful for anybody. Okay, so if you had to pick a, one thing uh, about one relationship that makes that relationship awesome and work, uh, what, would be, what would it be and what are steps you take to foster that? So here too. Also, if it's okay, I'm not going to get uh, too personal. Baruch Hashem, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a lot of wonderful different relationships in, in my life. And I guess to, to make it practical and you know, what I find make relationships work and this answer could change and, you know, it's evolving and every day I'm learning new things about relationships and what make them work. But at this stage in my life, the things that speak to me are, I guess I would put it into three categories, which are not really mutually exclusive, but one is valuing the relationship itself. And, And what that means is there's a meaning to the relationship independent of, of what it gives me. You know, mm. I, th- I think that's important. You know, whatever the relationship is through is, it's not just about what it's giving me, but there's value, whether it be a religious value, a value of connection. I, th- I think it's really important that people see the value independent of, of what it, it actually even gives them. And another thing is, I, I think would it really hinders relationships where people can't, be honest with themselves and being able to say they're sorry and, or to recognize when we make a mistake. I think we don't realize that it's really hard to say we're wrong. And because it's so hard, people, so many people don't do it, unfortunately. And I think for relationships to really work well, it's, it's really helpful and important to be able to admit when we make a mistake, as painful as that may be. And I think, you know, if we were to say, a third one really goes back to what we were discussing before about acceptance, being able to accept people, you know, for, for who they are, you know, as much as we can want to change ourselves, we have to, you know, thinking back to the story of 
Lazar and the person realize I don't know where you're going through in life. I don't know your, even if I know you really, really well, I'm, I'm not you. I don't know your inner struggles. Your, and I think we always have to be aware and sensitive to that and try to you know, accept people, their, their whole selves, you know, even with their flaws. And that too could be challenging. But I, I think that, you know, I think those are, are three things that at least at this stage in my life, I find are really important to being able to make relationships work. Wow. Those are, that was awesome. That's amazing. That's great stuff. So you're, you, you, you talked about acknowledging the inherent value and worth of the relationship over and above what it does for you. Uh, you talked about, um, realizing that as well as you know, a person, as well as you think, you know, a person, you don't know anybody and you don't really fully understand everything they're going through and, um, the acceptance around that and the acceptance and think, around and that can even be one's own parent, spouse, child, right. it can be someone, you know, in some ways it's harder there because it's you. right. It's so easy to fall. Right. You assume, Oh, I, I know everything about you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's very vulnerable to realize you don't know anything about anyone. Right. Really? I'm saying, I mean, you know, you know, but you don't know, you don't know what it's like to be in their, in their shoes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. It's like that. Uh, I was, I was in a, a group this morning with a bunch of guys who were like learning and, um, we were reading this story and the guy was talking about how it dawned on him. This is like an acceptance-based reflection. It dawned on him. He was looking out the window and he said, I have this window that overlooks this beautiful spot. And I asked people to describe to me what they see and they, and, and they never describe what I see. And at that moment he realized that he couldn't impose his experience onto anybody else's experience. Right. So, cause you, you don't really know, you know, like the, even like that simple, like color reflection, like, I know that whatever you see when I see blue is the same, but I don't know if it's the same as me. Right. Right. You see something that's the same as whatever I see at the same time. It corresponds, but I don't know if it's the same thing and I can't ever know because mm-hmm. I can't ever look at the world through your eyes. Right. Wow. That's very, very powerful. Right. So yes. it's like that it comes back to, and then the other thing that you really said, which is really, really powerful and very practical and really jumped out at me and uh, is something that, um, like practically saying sorry. Well, saying sorry is easy, right? It's really saying I was wrong. <laughs> that's hard, right? It's, it's always right. very easy. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Right. Like, but it's really like, like look in the mirror, right? right? Before you run and say sorry and say I was wow. wrong, mm-hmm. right? That's actually much, much more challenging, uh, more difficult, beautiful. Okay, so the last two things, and then I want to spend a couple minutes on mindfulness, talk about uh, your book. Um, so I asked you to think about, I'm going to combine the last two questions, ask you to think about a practice or a mantra, um, that you have or do that helps you stay grounded and some specific steps you take to recharge, handle burnout or emotional downs. So in terms of mantra, you know, for me, that that's constantly changing. I think whatever I'm sort of either working on it or struggling with, I'll use a different mantra. I'll just, you know, two things that currently I, I guess mantra is a, I think about our one is the Pasuk and Mishle, Paragimel, Pasuk, hey, Betachal Hashem Becholi Becha, Belbinos Chaltishain, which, you know, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. The just, you know, constantly. Can you translate having, that for the audience? Yeah. Trust in Hashem with all your heart, but it's actually it's the second part that speaks to me even more. Belbinos Chaltishain, don't rely on your own understanding. And there's actually a beautiful Rabbi Yonah. On that, where he describes it, it means even 
when you think, oh, this is my great idea or, you know, look how smart I am or I came up like, don't, don't even put too much trust in that either. <laughs> you know, even when it comes to your own thinking, you should have, you know, try to stay humble with that and to continue to have faith in Hashem or when we make decisions and, and it, it, curls, it works both ways. Even when we make decisions and make mistakes, that, that too, we don't know how much of it was really within our own Bechira and how much is really coming from, from Hashem. So for me, that's, that's one Pasuk that I've been you know, using a lot lately. And another is from the Igaris Haramban. I actually have been sharing this with patients, you know, some patients lately as well, where his, I think it's the second or third line, where he writes, And what it basically means is you should constantly speak to all people, all times, in a calm manner. And it's interesting how it seems like he may be repeating himself, like all times, you know, all people, all places. But I think he's doing it purposely because we'll constantly give excuses to ourselves. No, this situation, this warrants that I, I raise my voice or I speak in a harsh manner. He's like, no, they're like, there's never a situation. Right, right. Like always be calmly. Right. It's any time that I may have that temptation to read, like that's the line that comes to my mind like this right there's always things that there's never an excuse for and once you open the door for the time where there's an excuse that's where yeah it gets complicated yeah that's uh that's a very powerful principle very powerful uh, anything about uh burnout emotional downs wake up on the wrong side of the bed maybe that never happens for me, to me no, 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 <laughs> no and uh, maybe it happens too much but usually the two things for me, exercise is huge. I think I, like for me, I need to exercise every day. And, and when I don't, I feel the difference. Mm. Uh, even if it's 10 minutes, like that's something that makes a big difference to me. And to bring out like every now and then I'll, I'll just have to take a day off and I'll even, you know, after davening, you know, go back to bed and, and just sleep or just even rest in bed doing nothing. You know, I find that's when I feel like I really push myself too much or I'm just getting to that point where I need a break. I'll, I'll take, you know, some time off. And even if it's not a whole day, even just a few hours to just or just sit on the couch and read like a, a light book. Like a permission to do nothing. It's, yeah. it's that's the second time it came up. It's 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 funny to think about that today. It's like, a you know, we're so used to being busy with something, even if it's if it's kind of meaningless. It's like we have to give ourselves permission to do nothing. Yes. To heal. Okay, so you wrote this remarkable book. Uh, it's actually published by uh, Mosaica, and that's how we—I think that's how we met. Um, that's how we got connected. Uh, it's a great company. I don't know if your what your experience was, but uh, yeah, such were, good work. Really, really great. Um, so um, Rabbi Kornbluth, or is like one of the editors or the editor. I don't know the exact title, but uh, I, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry, Rabbi Kornbluth. No, I, I really I, I loved your book. Oh, thank you. That's it, very it kind. Really spoke to me and. Uh, I, I hope it, it made a difference. Ah, thank you. That's okay. Thank you. So you wrote this remarkable book about mindfulness. It's specifically geared towards the Jewish community and validating the the what way kind of introducing mindfulness to maybe people that are less aware of it as a practice, and then also maybe some of the kind of correlations to Jewish thought and to the way that we practice. So first of all, what would you if you had to kind of um, pitch your book, but not in a salesy way, because it's not your style and it's not what's appropriate, but like, who would your book be good for 
you know, if, they, if someone wants to know, should I go out and get this book? Not just because they heard you and they like you, but like, and, and also what is mindfulness? How, how have you seen its benefits for other people? Right. So just because some people can know, like, wh what is this whole mindfulness thing? Is it real? Is it good? Is it something that that's worthwhile? And who might, who should really think about it? Um, not in a, in a silly way, because, you know, when you, I, I don't think you would do that, but it's just like, you know, there are people that would really benefit from your book. Who are those people? I'm going to try to actually when the public I initially met with publishers, they asked the question, who is it for? So I said, there were two parts. I said, who I think it's for, and then who's actually going to pick it up. Okay. Or who I hope is going to pick it up. So I, I wrote it because I, I believe in these ideas and a lot of them aren't my own ideas. I was really just sort of trying to organize it and put it in a certain way. I can't really take much credit for most ideas, but I actually like to believe that the book could be for everyone. I think there are just important ideas in life that really anyone can benefit from. Okay. Um, in, in terms of who's actually or who will find it more interesting is, is probably going to be people who have been told by, you know, either their therapists or have heard about this you know, idea of mindfulness. And, you know, right now there aren't, you know, that many books actually on it. Just actually as an aside, I'll just, right when I, soon after I submitted the book to the publishers, a good friend of mine, Rabbi Dr. Benji Epstein, came out with his beautiful book. Yeah. And Living in the Presence. And we actually, we went to, it was the same professor that introduced us both to mindfulness. We were both, I was in graduate school, he was a few years above me. And we actually, we both went to, to YU and we, we've known each other for a while. And at this, but we didn't know that we were each working on our respective you know, books. And I got, as I see his book comes out, I'm like, oh no, like I don't want Benji to <laughs> be upset at me. Like if I'm coming out with this book soon after. So I called him up and he said something really powerful. He's like, he's like, Yoni, this, this is not about me or you. This is about a message that's much bigger than, than the two of us. Mm. And it's about trying to get that message out. And that he was such a mensch, and he, he, Baruch Hashem, he's such a wonderful person, and and that's really what it's about getting the, this message out. And I think for people that are already interested in mindfulness, seeing that we have it within our tradition, and it can be found within Judaism. Of course, there are a lot of you know great secular books, but I think that there are things within Judaism that clearly promote mindfulness. And also, one of the things that I try to address is how. I think a Jewish perspective mindfulness does have some differences than some of the secular approaches. And I, I tried to point some of those out. Um, so that's who I think, uh, you know, in terms of the people that may find it more interesting. I mean, one of the things I noticed about Benji's book versus yours um, was his was much more theoretical idea centric and yours was almost like a manual. Mm -hmm. It felt more like practical. I don't know. No, it's great. Interesting, even though, right, they're extremely different works. Right. I think says, uh, you know, you could have go through a similar education, uh, but at the end of the day, right, they're so different. And I think they actually they, they complement. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I, I really think they do. I had that experience myself reading both of them. I, I felt like this was, it was beneficial to have, even be reading both. Of I, mean, I ended up reading both at the same time. Oh, wow. And one was like nice. It was lofty. I found myself in the experience of reading, not that your book wasn't lofty, but right. But, but when I was reading uh, Benji's book, I was kind of like very lost in my head, you know? And when I walked away from reading a chapter of your book, I felt kind of very grounded. 
and I like I had something to walk away with that that I thought that was really it was really great. I think it was uh, it, it was a, it was a certain Ashkachaprat as a divine providence that I think that both books came out. Right, it's amazing. Right, how in a good way? I think uh, you know. I think I think it's amazing. Just to go back to the question, what kind of problems might someone be having? You know, that, that's kind of more what I want to draw it, uh, aside from a type of person. Like if, if someone's struggling with a problem, now obviously someone is having real problems, they want to seek out mental health, health support, they want to get, get, go into therapy, right. seek out help. Okay, but we're not talking about that in terms of like, you know, not to be, again, we're not be trying to be cliche, self-help, but in all the ways that self-help is. But if somebody's working on themselves, if you were going to like, um, encourage someone specifically towards mind, like this was really going to help you because obviously mindfulness can be helpful to anybody. But what kind of problems do you think um, mindfulness is uniquely suited to really address? The problem of the human condition. Okay. <laughs> or to put it, the, I think we live in unprecedented times where we just, been, part of the reason why I think mindfulness has become so popular is because we live in a time where it's so hard to be mindful does not come naturally and there are so few opportunities there you've never learned a time before you could be so distracted wherever you are people now have their, their phones right next to them and right in some ways there i think we need it more now than than ever before so it's it's i guess to really for me it's about being willing to sit with oneself so would you say someone who's struggling with that would benefit from? Yes, but I think we'd be surprised how many of us are. Right. In other words, I think most people to some degree have a hard time sitting with themselves. That doesn't mean all the time, but it's sitting with our own emotions. Right. Some people will say, so who is mindfulness for and how to use it? And it's hard to give a general answer. To be really honest, I think it's going to depend on each person. Okay you know, where they themselves are, are either getting stuck or want to improve. And it's hard to give a general answer. The you think it's a personality thing? A personality. Like some that. people's personalities are more oriented towards mindfulness versus others? Or not? I, I'm, I'm sure there are. But that doesn't mean, if, if anything, like, uh, like part of the reason why mindfulness speaks to me so much is because I think by nature, unfortunately, I'm a person that has a hard time slowing down. And, you know, for me, so sometimes it's specifically the people that it doesn't come as naturally for that it's even more, more important. <laughs> and then there are going to be those that it does come more naturally for, and that's great. And they need to lean into that strength. Yeah. Are there specific, okay, so, so you answered the question in a lot of ways. Um, I hope. Sorry. No, no, you did. You did. I think you're <laughs> you're overthinking the question a little too much, <laughs> right? So the one hand, the the one of the answers you said was that mindfulness is really helpful for anybody, and the other one is that um, if it's something you enjoy, it's really important for you to further lean into that. And if it's something that's hard for you, it's also important to try to do more. And one of the messages that you've been giving across throughout this interview is trying includes accepting your limitations. You know, so you talked about just shutting off the radio for a couple minutes or just exercising for 10, 15, 20 minutes, a half hour, right? Whatever it is that you can do is critically important. So there's a, a certain acceptance underlying that, right? That mindfulness doesn't have to be perfect. Um, and I think those are all really powerful messages. So the, the book is useful for anybody who's kind of experiencing both of those things. A, people that enjoy mindfulness and then people that are, you know, you want to know if you're struggling with mindfulness, shut off the radio when you're in the car 
for five minutes and see how uncomfortable it is to be in your skin without, you know, shut off your phone, not on Shabbos, <laughs> you know, like, right. right. And see how uncomfortable that is. And that's a, that might be a good indicator. Are there specific types of like regular human distress that mindfulness, you find mindfulness being very, very helpful for like anxiety or depression or, um, anything like that? Yes. And in fact, some of the earlier uses in, of mindfulness was specifically for depression and anxiety. And here too, in, the exercise may need to be tailored a little differently depending on where a person's struggling with, but even with anxiety, mindfulness is one of the most effective techniques in terms of just teaching people that you don't need to run away from it. You can stay with it. And often as you stay with it, it'll actually get easier. Right. And it doesn't need to take you over as much. Right. So it's very effective for, for both of those. And depression too. You know, so much of our depression is we're trying to run away and to fight with it. And mindfulness is teaching. Let's lean into it a little more. And, and as we do there too, it should, in most cases, become easier and less likely to take over a person. Right. It diminishes a little bit on its own. Right. Like- and I, I don't want to, like, clearly there are more severe cases and one needs to have the appropriate treatment. And mindfulness can be incorporated in that. I, it, it's not usually going to be the entire treatment in itself, but it right. could definitely be another important piece to add to whatever work the person's already done. Amazing. Okay. Yoni, Dr. Feiner, this was awesome. fantastic. It was great. It was really, really good. I hope so. really, I really appreciate so you joining us. All the best. All right. You listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of The Living Room, which is a division of Our Place New York, made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family, in memory of Tsipora Basravaron. Host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky and produced by Chaim Cohn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback, so please feel free to email us or on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Oh,